This morning, we're continuing our teaching series called House Rules. We're spending several weeks examining the different rules that we see in the scriptures and why they're given, why we even have rules in the scriptures. And Pastor Ben has done a great job the last couple weeks introducing the topic, introducing uh, why we have rules and why God has given the rules. And over the next few weeks, we are going to dive in into these specific instances where Jesus teaches rules and teaches about the rules. So we're kind of zeroing in on some real specific areas that Jesus um, interacts with rules and can show us what's going on. And our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 5. John is this great gospel. Um, it's the fourth gospel in our Bibles as we buy them off the shelf at a bookstore. And uh, John, if you've read the gospels, the gospel of John is quite a bit different than the other three. Have you noticed that? The other three all kind of have similar storytelling styles. They have similar structures. Uh, they tell, they, sometimes they word for word tell the same stories as they have heard from the witnesses or were witnesses themselves to Jesus. John's gospel takes a little bit of a different approach. I think John might have been the artsy fartsy one of the apostles because he took Jesus's life, he took the stories, uh, he took the witnesses account and he tells them accurately and truly, but he includes different parts of the story that the other gospel writers do. He includes different statements from Jesus that the other gospel writers decided to leave out of the story. He tells the same story, but he includes and adds and he emphasizes different elements of it. And so as you read through John, it feels very different from the other gospels. It's because he's trying to do something else, something entirely different than the other gospel writers are doing. And one thing that we're going to see here in John chapter 5 is that one of the ways that John talks about Jesus, he almost uh, sets up these stories as if Jesus is in a court and he's a lawyer trying to talk about himself and trying to testify about himself. And that's what we're going to see here in John chapter 5. As we jump into this passage, this is what Jesus says. He's speaking to a group of um, Jewish, Jewish people, but also leaders. So the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, some of the legal experts. So he's talking to this big crowd of Israelites. And, and kind of sprinkled in this group are some leaders that he's going to pinpoint and he's going to kind of antagonize at this point. But this is what he says. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies on my behalf. And I know that his testimony to me is true. So Jesus starts off, and we have the court case, the law and order, right? Dun, dun, the law, the law scene starts here. Jesus begins to talk about testimony, and he begins taking witness statements. At this time, if you were in the court of law, their equation, you know, whatever they had, that was the same thing as a court of law. Uh, you could not testify on your own behalf. For someone to be charged with anything, or to someone to defend themselves, you had to have two or three witnesses that were not you testify on your behalf, okay? So as we head into this passage, that's what Jesus is doing here. If I testify about myself, not legal. I can't do it. My testimony is not true. It cannot be trusted. He says, but there is another who testifies on my behalf, and I know that his testimony to me is true. Now, in Jesus' time, there were a lot of people that had a lot of thoughts about Jesus. There were a lot of people who had opinions about Jesus, who made testimony about Jesus in formal and informal ways. And there were a lot of people, especially the legal experts, 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These were kind of, you know, you can kind of think of them like maybe the pastors or the writers, right, of the time, the people who studied the scriptures. They had opinions about Jesus. They also had opinions about God. And they would teach the Israelites about God. They would teach the Israelites about what God was doing and what God wanted from them. There were a lot of opinions floating around at this time about God and about who Jesus was. Now, this is exactly like our day, right? It's exactly like our society. There are a lot of opinions about who God is and who Jesus is. Our culture, our society, has a lot of testimony, a lot of witness statements about God. Most of them are false. We are indoctrinated and inundated with these ideas and images about God and Jesus that aren't biblical and that aren't true. Our culture has been affected deeply by the Christian faith. We can see it in cartoons, we can see it in movies, we can see it in art, we can see it in the radio, in our politics, in uh, our podcasts, all the, all the media and all the different things that we engage in on a regular basis have been impacted by the gospel, by the Christian faith. Unfortunately, it's also all mixed around with all these other ideas. So we live in a society today where still the majority of people would identify as a Christian of some sort, right? That's the largest, not the majority, but that's the largest kind of religious block of our society. Most of the people around here, especially in this area, are Christians of some sort, or at least would identify themselves as Christians of some sort, right? The thing is, though, that they aren't always Christians who have been informed or shaped by regular attendance to a community of believers who hears the word of God on a regular basis and whose ideas of God are impacted by scripture rather than by culture. I actually had a situation like this just happened this week, um, ironically. Um, I know that seems to happen a lot. Pastor Ben and I, sometimes we mention that, that it's like, Something happens in our life that like, oh man, this will be perfect for the sermon on Sunday. It seems to happen every time that we preach. Uh, but this last week, I went to go talk to somebody, not a member of our church, not connected to our church, someone of, in the community, and uh, their wife was very sick. The wife was very sick and dying. And they had some questions about what happens when you die. It was a great opportunity to share the gospel, so I got to share the gospel with this person at this time. Um, but the, the individual said, yeah, I believe in God, and, but then he followed that up with, but I, I haven't been to church since I got married, since my, since my wedding 56 years ago. So this individual who they trust in Jesus as the Messiah, uh, as far as they understand that, they know that God exists and they, they uh, as best they can, I guess, are, are believing in God and what he has done. They are completely not shaped by the Christian community, by a community like this. And so he had some weird ideas about God. He had some weird ideas about the afterlife. And it's because we're shaped not just by our church, but also by our culture. And as I am out in the community as a pastor, I have a lot of conversations about God. There are kind of two ways that people think about God. And one way that they think about God is essentially, well, I like to call this guy Zeus. That this individual is an old man with a long white beard who lives in the clouds and they are waiting, this, this man is waiting for us to mess up so he can throw lightning bolts down at us and punish us. 
That's Zeus, right? But a lot of people think that's how God works. They think he's some distant person that's out there that if we do something wrong, they're going to immediately punish. They're gonna send down the lightning bolt and something bad is going to happen. Maybe you've had this thought even yourself. Something bad happens in your life, you get sickness, car breaks down, whatever it might be, and you think, what did I do wrong that this is happening? We begin to think that maybe God just wants to punish us for doing something wrong. The other way that people think about God, I like to call this God Santa Claus God, where they kind of see God as, again, this old man with a white beard living in the clouds who's making a list, who's checking it twice, and who's going to find out who's naughty or nice, right? They kind of live out in this cosmic divine space where they're keeping track of how much good and bad every single one of us does. And if the good outweighs the bad, then we get good things. But if the bad outweighs the good, then we get coal. And they treat God as if he does what Santa Claus does, right? As we see Santa Claus. That there's this divine being out there who gives us good things or bad things based on how good or bad we are. Does this sound familiar at all? I'm guessing that some of you in this room may have had ideas like this in the past. Maybe you have ideas like this right now. Maybe you have loved ones who have these kinds of ideas. Largely, the testimony about God and our culture is one of these two things. God is like Zeus, waiting for us to mess up, and he's just gonna strike us down as soon as we mess up. Or God is like Santa Claus, and he's keeping his little list, who's naughty and nice, and he's going to give us good things or bad things depending on if we are naughty or nice. That's our culture's testimony about God. Those are the ideas floating out there. What we're gonna see today is that Jesus, he takes these ideas that we have about God and he takes the ideas that the Israelites at his time, that the leaders, that the biblical scholars, the Pharisees, he's gonna take their ideas, he's gonna take our ideas and he's gonna flip them upside down. He's gonna change the way that we think about God. There's another testimony that is true and right. And so he continues. You sent messengers to John, that is John the Baptist, and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept such human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He says, there's another one who testifies about me, and then he brings up John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. He was kind of a strange man. Uh, he kind of had some uh, wild ways about him, uh, but he was filled with the Spirit, and he was sent out into the desert, and he lived out in the desert as like a, a hermit, as like a monk. And uh, his hair was wild, and he uh, only wore camel hair clothing, which even at, I mean, at this time was primitive. Like, no one wore camel hair clothing. And then he only ate locusts and wild honey. So he only ate the things that you could find out in the desert. Bees, honeycomb, and grasshoppers. And that's all he ate. So he's kind of this strange, eccentric kind of man. And he testified about Jesus, saying that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the anointed one of God who has come to save the world, come to die for the world, to overcome the world. 
And Jesus here says that this testimony was true. But Jesus doesn't accept human testimony. So even though John was right, Jesus says his testimony still isn't even good enough. He says here that uh, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Real quickly, this is an interesting side note here. Uh, Burning and shining lamp is a weird phrase that Jesus uses. This is the only time he uses a phrase like this in the Gospels. Uh, He has one other teaching about lamp. You know, you don't cover a lamp when it's lit up. Uh, But this phrase here, what Jesus is doing, I think, is he's actually calling all the Israelites who are well acquainted with the Bible, at least what we would call the Old Testament, he's calling them to remember all the times that the Old Testament talks about lamps and talks about fire, which mostly that happens in the prophets. The prophets spent a lot of time seeing images of and visions of the Holy of Holies, which was God's throne room in the temple, and in the temple, there was a lamp. You might, we, we know it as a menorah, right? Around Hanukkah time, you see the menorahs. There was a lamp sitting in the Holy of Holies. And oftentimes, the prophets would see visions of a lamp or a lamp stand. And I think what Jesus is doing here is trying to connect John the Baptist to the Old Testament prophets. He's kind of saying, John is like the last Old Testament prophet, He's kind of the last of that kind. John the Baptist was a little bit like a man outside of his time. He was more like the Old Testament prophets than he was like Jesus. So John's testimony is true, but it's still from the old thing. It's not the new thing that God is doing. So we have here this shining and burning lampstand, and people were willing to rejoice for a while in John the Baptist. He was popular. People liked John the Baptist. He preached this great prophetic message. He antagonized the leaders and the Romans and King Herod. He did a great ministry of turning people, repenting, uh, encouraging people to repent and turn back to God because the kingdom was coming. Jesus continues, but I have a testimony that's greater than John's. The works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works I am doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. Jesus' first witness, his works. His power, his healing, the fact that he could cast out demons. His works testify to him. And the Father who sent me has himself testified on my behalf. You have never heard his voice or seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe him whom he has sent. So the Father's works that Jesus does testify on his behalf and the Father himself does. And he gives this curious little phrase here, you have never heard his voice or seen his form. Again, he's talking to these Israelites. They know the Bible really, really well. Like, the Israelites know the Bible way better than we do. They were trained, steeped in it. And so when he says you have never heard his voice or seen his form, what would have happened is a memory of the scriptures would have triggered in these people's minds. As they heard that phrase... There is one character in the Old Testament who heard God's voice and saw his form. He's a really, really important character. There are more than just one. But there's one in particular that's really, really, really important, and that's Moses. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and receives the law, receives the Ten Commandments, he hears God's voice speaking to him, and he asks God, God, I want to see you. And God's like, no, if you see me, you're just going to burn to a crisp. That's not a good idea. You don't want to do that. 
And so what God does instead, he says, Moses, I'm going to turn my back to you, and I'll let you see my back. And Moses describes seeing the form of God, seeing God's presence kind of pass through on the top of the mountain. Moses heard God's voice and saw his form. Didn't see God directly, but kind of this form of God as it passed by. As the Israelites are hearing this, they're going to be thinking about Moses. Jesus is giving a little teaser here. He says, and you do not have his word, that is God's word, abiding in you, because you do not believe him who sent me. And then he gives this great statement. It's like my, probably my favorite statement of Jesus. You search the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, that was their scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify on my behalf. He says, as you look across the landscape of what we call the Old Testament, of the Bible, of all the books of the Bible, all the prophets, all the stories, all the laws, all the Psalms, what they are doing is getting to me. I'm the guy. The whole Old Testament, all the scriptures point to me. They point to Jesus, right? They are pointing everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, is there to get us to Jesus, including the rules, including all the rules, the Ten Commandments, all those crazy law codes that we're going to talk about here in just a minute, they all are pointing to Jesus. You search the scriptures thinking that in them you can find life, but they're all about me. Everything in the scriptures points us to Jesus. It's trying to get us to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, and everything in the New Testament points backwards to Jesus. Jesus is the linchpin. He's the most important thing about scripture, is the person of Jesus and his work and his death and his resurrection. Everything in the Bible is getting us to him, to our salvation in Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection. Everything is pointing to him. If we jump down a little bit in this teaching, Jesus gives a little bit of, of how this works. He says, do not think, and this is beginning in verse 45, so we're jumping down a little, little ways. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. So Jesus says, I'm not going to accuse you. I'm not here to accuse you. I'm not here to accuse the world. I'm not going to accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So we're going to have to get, get into the weeds a little bit here. Um, so if you're not, like, if you do not get excited about thinking about all the details of the Bible, I apologize. We're going to be doing this for a few minutes, and then we're going to, we're going to circle back the wagons, and we're going to, we're going to get, get into it a little bit further. But just to get into the weeds a little bit, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you open up your Bible to the front, front pages, those are going to be the first five books that you're going to run into. They're big, thick books, and they lay down the foundation for the rest of the Bible. Like, they're really, really important to understand the whole biblical story. Those first five books are also called the law. 
So when you hear in the New Testament or in the Psalms or in other places, when you hear people talk about the law, more than likely they're referencing those first five books. And we know that Moses wrote, compiled, edited by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote those five books. His is the voice that unites those five books. He wrote those five books. And so when Jesus is referencing Moses here and what Moses wrote, he's talking about the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he's saying that Moses, in those first five books, wrote about him, wrote about Jesus. So when we enter into this space of reading scripture, and especially those first five books, which include a lot of rules, including the Ten Commandments, which are the big ones, and then there's like 603 other rules listed in there, and it's like, it's dense and it's mind-numbing sometimes to get through those first five books. What Moses is doing there is getting us to Jesus. In fact, the middle three books of Moses' five books, not Genesis, but Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, those are full, chock full of rules that are extremely complicated and hard to wrap our heads around, and it is so hard to work through there. If you ever try to read through your Bible in a year, you're probably gonna stop at these three books, right? You're gonna get through Genesis, you're gonna be doing fine, you're gonna get through the first part of Exodus, you're gonna get to Mount Sinai, everything's great, and then you're gonna get into Leviticus, and most of the time that's when people ditch, because it's so dense and hard to get through all the rules. But Jesus is saying here that all of those rules are pointing to him. Everything is getting us to Jesus. And in fact, it's really interesting because before God gives all the 613 rules in Exodus, um, beginning in Exodus, when they're at Mount Sinai, God speaks to Moses, he speaks to the Israelites, and he says something really interesting. He says, as they enter into this contract, and that's what the rules are, it's kind of a contract. He says, if you keep these rules, I will be your God and you will be my people. We will be connected to one another. If you break the rules, there are gonna be consequences. If you break the rules, the curse of your sin is going to affect you and your children and your grandchildren all the way to the seventh generation. He says, but if you keep my rules, if you stay in connection with me, if you love me and seek me, I will bless you and I will bless your generations to the thousandth generation. The consequences of sin last for generations, but the promises of God last eternally. Thousands of generations. So even when God gives the rules, before he gives the Ten Commandments, the very first rules that he gives, before he even gives the rules, he says, this is the promise. If we are connected to one another, you are gonna have blessing. I will be your God, you will be my people, and you will do good to the whole world. So even from the beginning, it was all about connection, connecting with God and knowing God. And then what happens as you read through the Torah, the law, those first five books, as you read through it, you notice that there's a pattern that occurs once the laws start being, start being given by God. God will give a chunk of laws. There will be a set of laws that'll be, whatever, 50 to 75 laws deep. And they're strange, bizarre, they're, they seem really like particular and strange. But he gives all these rules, and then immediately there's a story about how the Israelites break all the rules. 
It's like it never fails. That he gives rules and they immediately go and break them and then God saves them out of that situation. He saves their hide. And then he gives them more rules and then they go and they break the rules again and he saves their hide. Then he gives more rules and they go and break the rules and he saves them again. That's the pattern of the first five books of the Bible. God being faithful and patient and kind and generous to his people who keep breaking the rules over and over and over again. And so you get through those five books and you think, God help us. We, we need help because people cannot do this. We need somebody to help us. Moses promises a prophet like him who's even greater. And we read through the rest of the Old Testament and it's the same pattern. Story after story after story of there being a promising individual, a Moses, a David, a judge, one of the judges, Ezra and Nehemiah, all these promising individuals that almost get there, but they fail the test. None of them measure up. Every story in the Old Testament is ultimately a tragedy because you have hope in this leader and they all fail, every single one of them. And so we get to the end of the Old Testament and we think, God help us. We need help. And that's when Jesus comes in. The Old Testament is a story about how God faithfully and graciously and patient, with patience works with his people, continues to forgive their sins, continues to be good to them and give them blessing, and finally Jesus comes and he gives that blessing to the whole world. The Old Testament is a story of God's faithfulness that points us to Jesus. The religious leaders were reading their scriptures, were reading these laws, not as a story that gets us to Jesus, but as some sort of like, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, an instruction booklet, a manual for how to live a moral life, which the Bible tells us a lot about morality, tells us a lot about how to live a moral life, it does. But Jesus says, ultimately, the purpose of all the scriptures is to get you to him. That's the purpose. And so what we see is that, is that rules in the Bible works on us in three ways. First of all, it tells us who God is. It shows us that God is faithful and he is good and gracious to us. Secondly, and most importantly, it gets us to Jesus. It shows us how flawed we are as people and it gets us to Jesus. And the third thing is what Pastor Ben preached on last week. That after we are in Christ, God gives us, we read these rules again, and no longer are they oppressive and scary, but now they're really quite free. We can read these rules now not, as some, not out of some fear that Zeus is going to strike us with lightning, but that God is giving us a guideline, a GPS, as Pastor Ben talked about it that we can live our life in a moral and upright way and have true freedom in our lives. The Bible is all about Jesus. It is all and finally about Jesus. It is in him that we have life. It is in him that we can then go back and read the rules again. We can go back and hear the rules and they're no longer scary, but now they're freeing. They're no longer something that we have to run away from or try to hide from, but now they're something that we can accept. They're wisdom for us to live our lives in Christ. I love what Jesus says here. We're gonna jump back up a little bit 
to verse 39 and 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that testify on my behalf. Everything's about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me to have life. In Jesus is life. In Jesus is life abundant. A life that is patient and peaceful and joyful. Life that is lived generously and with hope. We cannot find it through anything else. We cannot find it through any other way that we see God. We cannot find it through fearfully trying to follow every command. We cannot find it through fearfully trying to make sure that our good things outweigh our bad things. We find them in Jesus, who then leads us to the peace and patience and righteousness that he wants for us. We read the scriptures to get to Jesus, and he gets us into righteousness and holiness and all those things that God promised. But it's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done and what he is doing in us by the Holy Spirit.